Hello, my name is Charles Goldfarb, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alexander Aleem, for the AOA podcast, Lessons in Orthopedic Leadership. Today's podcast will focus on a program within the AOA to recognize key orthopedic surgeons, past and present, who have demonstrated exemplary leadership throughout their careers, serving as role models and mentors. These surgeons have advanced the orthopedic profession through their dedication and leadership. These individuals are the AOA pillars of the orthopedic profession. Today, we welcome our first pillar, and there will be others to follow, to the podcast, Dr. Terry Light. Dr. Light is a graduate of Yale University, received his medical education at the Chicago Medical School, completed his residency and internship at Yale New Haven Hospital, and fellowship in hand surgery at Connecticut Combined Hand Surgery Program. He served as faculty at Yale School of Medicine before joining the faculty of Loyola University Chicago Stritch School of Medicine in 1980 as a generalist and hand surgeon. His current practice is focused on pediatric hand surgery, but we'll talk about his current practice as we get into the podcast. He served as the chairman of the Department of Orthopedic Surgery and Rehabilitation at Loyola for 25 years. He is past president of a number of organizations, including our own, the American Orthopedic Association, as well as the American Society for Surgery of the Hand, the Academic Orthopedic Society, the Illinois Orthopedic Society, and the Chicago Hand Society. He is currently chair of the American Foundation for Surgery of the Hand and a trustee of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. He has numerous honors. I can go on and on, but I'll stop there and say welcome, Dr. Light. Well, thank you. Dr. Light, it's really an honor, and uh, I'm glad I get to meet you over uh, over this format. Your resume speaks for itself. I think we'll start with a fairly open-ended question. A lot of what the AOA's mission is, is leadership, and as a, as a pillar of the AOA, what, what does leadership mean to you, and do you have any key principles that drive what that means to you? Well, I think uh, leadership is about bringing people together for a common cause, and the leader has to be looking in all directions at once. You need to have the support of the group that you're leading, but the group depends on you to have an awareness of the larger world to help chart a course forward for the group. That's helpful. So I've heard you speak before about the concept of vision and developing a vision and I know that's a collaborative process, and I'm sure you've done it many times for many different organizations, but maybe give us a hint on talking through what that looks like or has looked like for you. Well, I think mission and vision are the two buzzwords, and uh, mission is about what the aim of the organization is. Vision is where you want to go with the organization, and so the vision is about the future. The mission are the principles that underlie the organization that help inform how you get to that uh, envisioned future. But none of this is possible without, without a consensus or consent of those who are part of the organization. Uh, you get your authority to lead only by having the support of those uh, within the organization. It's an interesting concept because I think, you know, a lot of people sort of view leadership as, as almost a dictator type, you know, and the leader is in charge and they have to kind of command things. And, and a lot of times the leader gets blamed when the organization fails and it's, and it's maybe sometimes the lack of that consent or sort of process from the followers. Can you talk a little bit about sort of how do you get 
the followers to buy into that, what some of your successes were with that, and maybe some of the mistakes that, that have been made in, in trying to get there? Well, the number one rule is, is honesty. That if you're dishonest in anyone you deal with, that is, is profoundly corrosive. And you'll lose, you'll lose the buy-in from those who, uh, who you're leading. If, if they have a, even a scent that uh, you're, you're not being truthful with them. So that's, that's the first uh, principle. You can use your authority going forward, but if you're, if you're not honest, uh, you'll, you'll use it up very quickly. There are different styles of leadership. And we typically think of individuals as fitting into one category, you know, a domineering leader or authoritative leader or a servant leader. How do you see that? And do you believe that one leader can keep his, his or her feet in different camps? Well, I think there are different situations that call for different kinds of leadership. You know, if you, if you come under enemy fire, you're not going to hold hands, sing kumbaya and have a vote as to how you're going to respond. So that's part of the obligation that is an awareness of the, of the larger environment that, that you have to be thinking about what's next as a leader and uh, because the world changes. We have this sense that you, you rise through a hierarchy and you become a leader and, uh, and then you, you preside uh, royally over, over all your troops. But that's not really what the job is all about. The job is about, it's a dynamic job and it's gonna change. And the things that, uh, that come upon you are often unanticipated. But your job is to be out there trying to anticipate and think of the what ifs from the people in the back of the bus it may seem that everything is smooth because you've anticipated the bumps or you've taken a detour that nobody saw and, and stayed out of, uh, out, of the tr- out of trouble. Is there, is there a particular leadership style that came more naturally to you and were there challenges and maybe having to flip that because it, you know, you mentioned you have to be somewhat flexible, what was easy and what was hard? My uh, style is probably more collaborative than anything else, but there are times when uh, you need to rally the troops and build consensus and use the credibility you have if you think that uh, that there something a change is really needed. I can think of two major changes that I've been involved in. One at our medical center, I chaired the board of our faculty foundation. We had 750 members and we were a standalone corporation separate from the university the health system was constantly asking us to do things that given our structure really couldn't do very well. And mostly that had to do with physician salaries. We were on a very strict uh, formula within our foundation that meant that it was more or less eat what you kill, which was perfectly fine for the orthopedic surgeons, but for the rheumatologists and the neonatologists, uh, it was difficult to keep them employed, given the revenue stream uh, and the various taxes that we all paid. And I, I thought that the direction that medicine and large organizations were going was, was such that ultimately made sense for us to become employees of the health system, um, that that's where we would be in five or 10 years. I didn't know exactly when, but I thought the sooner we got there, the more we could 
focus on things that would help us be successful in the longer run. And so I led the board in exploring that relationship and ultimately merged our physician foundation into the health system. Well, there were 750 members and probably 750 opinions as to, to what we should do. So that, that was going to be a major change. And it took going to every department meeting and answering every email and every phone call and working very hard over, over a long period of time. Ultimately, I, I think it was uh, it's something I'm very proud of. It was the right decision, and uh, we did it in a way that um, that was thoughtful. And uh, nobody would think now that uh, of going back to the way it used to be. That's great. I'd love to hear the other story because this, I think, is what gets at the meat of leadership. These kind of stories, there, you know, leading that dramatic change in structure. Uh, had to be tough. And I assume your position as a leader of the orthopedic surgeons gave you credibility amongst the other departments. But I also assume that you lost people through that decision. There are people that, you know, maybe didn't like the way the direction and left the university. Is that true? And, and how did you handle that? Well, there were there were some defections or some, some people who, who, uh, thought we should stay the way we were and the way we had been for many years. And I think our original vote was 500 to 100 or something in that range. So the vast majority bought into it, but there was a group that didn't. And we had open meetings where people got up and said their piece. And, and I just stood there and, and listened. And I, I think in any organization, you actually wanna hear the people who have objections. If you understand what they are, sometimes they're very valid or they have a good point, and you don't want to suppress that. Uh, you want people to have the, the feeling the decision has been made after thoughtful consideration. Well, as it, it turned out, we needed a, an attorney. The health system had its attorney, who also had been attorney for our physician foundation, but we realized in this negotiation that we needed our own counsel. And we found a, a very bright woman who dealt with associations and mergers, happened to be in uh, Virginia. I flew out there a few times to talk to her. And she said, well, if you're going to do this, and part of what we were going to do was, was give our accounts receivable to the health system, you're going to need uh, to think about what if this doesn't work. And I naively said, well, I think it's going to work. She said, well, I think it's going to work, but there's no reason to rush. Let's make a list of the things that could go wrong. Well, if the health system didn't pay people the way they guaranteed they would, if, if this happened, if that happened. And one of the, for instances, was if the health system is sold. Well, health system belonged to the university. It had belonged to the university since 1968. That wasn't going to happen. But we did put it into the agreement that if the health system was sold, the physicians could have their accounts receivable back and we could go back to being independent. And lo and behold, two years after the deal was consummated, the university sold the health system. And that meant that, that we could have our foundation back. 
I didn't think that there was much sentiment for that, but the lawyers for the health system said, you need to have a vote because we need to, it needs to be crystal clear if people want out or not. And so we went through a whole second revisiting of the question. And the second time the vote was, I think it was like 500 or 600 to three that it actually had worked to the point where those hundred people who had, uh, had not been in favor of it uh, either left the institution or had con been convinced that we were in a better place. That's incredible. That that's an amazing story. You know, how do you how do you deal with the, those vocal dissenters? You know, because obviously, like you said, you want to be collaborative. You want to welcome opinions. But in an instance like that, where there's clearly a majority, or there's clearly a decision that is in the best interest of the group, but you still have maybe people in or maybe people that are you know of similar. Uh, authority as you are that may be dissenting against it. What's What's been some um, strategies you've had to, to maybe deal with some of that vocal opposition? Well, I think it's the same thing as dealing with an unhappy patient that you need to listen. They need to feel that you've heard them, not necessarily that you agree with them, but that you understand them. The worst thing is for them to think that you're turning a blind ear to them and, and not uh, valuing what they have to say. So we hear a lot when we have meetings, and I'm sure all the listeners have heard the sentiment that we're all leaders. And I think that's, there's a great truth to that. We as orthopedic surgeons lead teams and have to have certain skills, and certainly some do better than others. But yet not all orthopedic surgeons are meant to run their practice or their department. And some of us are better managers with the skill set for operations. Some of us are better visionaries. How do you think about that? And how do you see yourself truly? I mean, if you had to reflect on your accomplishments, more a visionary, I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but what are your thoughts? No, I think, I think that uh, I'm probably a manager before, before I'm a leader, that I, I always feel like I need to understand the data before making a decision and I need a certain depth of understanding before I'm going to try and lead people. Maybe it's because I'm a hand surgeon. <laughs> you know, I, I dig into, I dig into issues. I want to see the detail. And also I think that I try and see the big picture and do things that I think are going to have a long-term impact. Now, this will seem a little goofy, but Way back when I used to treat tibial fractures and casts, we would look at, at the knee and we'd look at the ankle and we'd want them to be collinear or lined up. But if the bone in between was a little bit crooked, but it was going to heal in a cast, we didn't really care much. I got to the point where I'd, I'd kind of put my hand over where the fracture site was just to make sure that we had the general alignment. And... I, in leadership position, often, certainly as a, as a department chair, would think about where are we going to be in five years? Is this a decision that's going to make sense in five years? And whether it's, it's hiring somebody who is going to come and work for me, but then he's going to need six months to go to, to do a fellowship in Switzerland, but then he's going to come back and be someone who's going to be productive, fine. Five years out, he's going to be a great member of the department. He's going to have special skills. 
that he's learned and let's figure out a way to solve that problem for the six months that he's gone. Uh, so I do, I do think you have to look at the big picture and you know that there's gonna be noise from others saying, well, what are we gonna do for those six months? You shouldn't let him go, we need him. And my sense is it's the right decision in the long run and we're gonna figure out how to solve it in the short run, whatever that may take. That's, that's for me, is, is part of the difference between a leader and a manager. A manager is worried about, you know, who's gonna be in clinic on Tuesday. Uh, the leader is thinking about where are we gonna be in five years and how does this fit into a larger plan or vision? That's a perfect segue to my question because I was going to ask, you know, kind of the, you hear about those micromanagers and people in leadership positions that maybe should be thinking about big picture, but are more on that managerial. Is that something that you can learn? Is that something that's just sort of innate um, with more experience? You decide you, you learn how to delegate better and can be a little bit more of that 20,000 foot in the air viewpoint. Or is that something that, like, like kind of Chuck said, that there are some people that are just sort of innately better with certain skill sets? Well, I think innately, I'm probably the micromanager. My hobby is putting jigsaw puzzles together. So I like fitting the pieces together. But I, I think I've gained tremendously through some of the AOA courses that we did. The, the Kellogg uh, six modules, I did all of those. And then the University of Chicago courses, I did... Uh, but all of those were helpful in the content. They also were helpful in, in causing you to sit back and reflect. And so all the leadership instruction, if it happened in a vacuum, I don't think it would be worth much. But if it happens to, to someone along the course of their career, they can relate it to where they've been and how they've solved certain problems or how they've confronted certain issues. And then how they might have done things differently the next time around. I have a million more questions. I, I am curious about your path to be such a impactful leader in different areas. At what point in your career, and there's a lot of younger orthopedic surgeons and residents, perhaps even medical students listening, at what point in your career did you realize you had the desire to do what sometimes looks like a thankless job of being a department chair and then, the, you know, society leaderships, I would take that separately. But at what point did you realize this, this fits my personality and I think I can make an impact? Well, one of my role models, major role models, was Wayne Southwick, who was the chair, or at the time he was the chief of the section of orthopedic surgery at Yale. And Wayne was just a wonderful, charismatic individual. And uh, there was more camaraderie amongst the residents in that program than I've seen anywhere ever. He was constantly on probation from the, the, the evil department of surgery chair, but as residents, we loved him. He was, he was a residency director and he was the uh, chief of the orthopedic section. And so I guess I always wanted to be like Wayne. And as I went along in my career, what I really wanted to do was to be the residency program director. But at the time, the orthopedic RRC had a rule, which was that the chairman or the chief of the service had to be the residency program director. So in order to be the residency program director, I had to become the chair. Now, as orthopedic groups grew over several years, 
it became clear that, that there was really too much to do to try and do both things. And uh, more and more the residency review committee got letters from chairs saying, I can't do it all. I'm gonna stay as chair, but I really think that this senior faculty member would do a great job as our residency program director. And can we have permission to violate that one rule? And so many programs were given permission that the rule was finally abolished. And I think I've been, I was both for maybe 10 years or 12 years. And my good friend, Michael Simon at the University of Chicago, uh, who I've always looked up to, and he's always been several steps ahead of me, said, hey, you're trying to do both. It's too much, you know, split the job up. And I always say that that was the decision that I made that maybe I should have regretted because I gave away the job that I really wanted. Bill Hopkinson became the residency program director, wonderful person, wonderfully suited for it. And I was left with the, uh, the less fun job as being department chair. That's, that's great. I, I did not realize that, that that distinction had to be, uh, had to be made later on. Maybe to, to kind of piggyback off of the last question, you've been involved with so many of the societies, especially on a impactful national level. That's a lot of commitment. A lot of it's voluntary. How did you decide to, to really dedicate your time to that, to, to sort of some of the higher missions with the, uh, with the academic subspecialties or societies? Uh, sadly, I never decided. <laughs> I never said, okay, I'm going to devote this much time to this or that. But opportunities came up, and I found that every one of the positions that I was involved with helped me grow. It taught me new lessons, exposed me to new people. I was involved in academic hand surgery, very involved in the hand society. I became involved in the AOA, not knowing very many people in leadership roles in the AOA, but very quickly getting to know a whole other group of very successful people in their own domains, if you will. I recognize the names, but I gradually got to know all these different people who were spine surgeons and hip surgeons and, and the, the, the greater world of orthopedic leadership. And, and that was exciting. That resonates with me. When I first became a member of the AOA, I had a lot of respect for many people in the AOA, but uh, initially, I don't know if I understood what I could get out of the AOA and how it could impact my career. And I've just slowly become more involved. And the more involved I get, it just seems to feed off of itself. So that really, that means a lot. And that, that does kind of reinforce and hopefully is a nice lesson for others. And I found that for other societies as well. Has that been your experience across the board, Dr. Light? Absolutely. Absolutely. Each of the organizations I've been involved with exposed me to different people in the world of orthopedics and, and uh, different challenges. Maybe I can tell you about the second um, major involvement I had, which was that I uh, was the president of the Academic Orthopedic Society. And this was a group that had at one time been an association of orthopedic chairmen, the AOC. Then they said, well, let's have maybe program directors and other people involved. And so became the AOS, the Academic Orthopedic Society. 
it was managed through the Orthopedic Academy specialty office. But the way that the org organization wasn't that big, we had different folks who were responsible, different months of the year, and it wasn't really a perfect fit. And as the president, it was hard to get things done and everything had to be kind of checked through the academy. And I, I thought this organization is, is gonna flounder. Uh, we barely had enough money to pay the staff with our dues. And we couldn't really take on the kinds of initiatives that we wanted to. So again, who do I turn to but my friend, Mike Simon. Mike at the time was the president of the AOA. And I said, maybe that's a better fit, the AOA and the Academic Orthopedic Society. Maybe we could figure out a way for Academic Orthopedic Society to be managed by AOA and, and play off of some of, those, some of those synergies. That led to a dinner with uh, the executive director of the AOA, Tom Stoutzenbach at the time, Mike and I. And after a couple of convivial hours, we decided that it might be best if we merged the two organizations. There was so much overlap in the membership. Virtually everyone who was in the Academic Orthopedic Society was in the AOA. The AOA was embracing leadership, but this would be a way to truly em embrace academic leadership. And again, we had to put it to a vote. And so we had lots of people who had ideas. We had open hearings about it, discussions, uh, a lot of phone calls. I think people, thought it would be attractive to pay less dues, one organization rather than two, I don't know. But there was, there was pretty good support for that. We had to figure out a way to integrate members of the Academic Orthopedic Society who weren't already members of the AOA and grandfather them in. Some people objected that maybe their CV wasn't long enough or that they hadn't done all the right things, but we, we worked through that. And and that's how CORD was born, was that, that CORD was essentially the successor to the Academic Orthopedic Society within the umbrella of the AOA. So that was an, another place where things could have gone along fine. I could have acted as a manager leader and been a little bit frustrated, but then turned it over to the next guy in line and... and uh, then we could both grumble together. But I, I just felt like we needed to take some action and, and we did. And looking back on it, it's one of those things that I'm most proud of in, in my career. Yeah, the story the story you tell makes it seem like it was a it was smooth sailing. No, no, no problems whatsoever, I'm sure. Um, you know, I think both both of you have sort of talked about how you kind of didn't realize what a lot of these societies had to offer until you got a bit more involved. And as someone on the younger, uh, just kind of getting into this, this stuff, um, I really had no idea what the AOA had to, had to offer until I got sort of almost asked to go to the resident leadership forum. And then even then it was still a little bit nebulous. How can, how can we really reach out to, to potentially residents, medical students, young attendings, young orthopedic surgeons that, may have interest in leadership, but may kind of see the AOA as still something that's a little bit sort of maybe doesn't have everything that they, that they want out of it. Is that a misconception about the AOA? Or how can we kind of reach out a little bit uh, to them? Well, I think certainly for, uh, for my generation, for the baby boomers, you know, we're all about merit badges and, and the honor of 
of achieving these things. I think that the physicians today are much smarter than that. And they're really looking for value. They come home from a meeting and they're, I was out of the office for four days. What did I learn? What insights do I have? How can this affect me going forward? Or yeah, it was nice. I had dinner with some of my friends, but you want to deliver things that have compelling value where if I hadn't been there, if I hadn't gone to that, that leadership course, I never would have understood these concepts. And so I think AOA is always looking for programming that's, that's uh, relevant and that is timely and uh, that has value, but also it creates a forum for people to, to give feedback so that the symposia at our annual meetings have plenty of time for people to stand at the microphone and, and tell everyone else what they think or try and give their own paper. I <laughs> uh, love that. Um, so you, you've mentioned a couple of uh, large figures in orthopedics as being folks that you look up to, including Dr. Simon and Dr. Southwick. Who were true mentors for you and, and what did you learn from them? There's certainly, I think we all recognize there's different styles of mentorship, lead by example. You know, what, what, what did you do when you were looking for a mentor and how do you flip that around today? Because I know you've been a mentor to many. I, I didn't look for one per, to replicate what one person was doing. Wayne Southwick was the most wonderful individual, charismatic. He was a terrible administrator. That's why he was always on double secret probation. So I didn't take that from him. I kind of took my own spin, did the, the managerial part of it, uh, but tried to m- maintain the spirit and enthusiasm that dominated in our, my residency. You see different things in, in, in different leaders and you, you want to take that and it's an a la carte menu. I, I, I wouldn't say there's one person that I completely uh, emulated. I, I always always looked at uh, Richard Gelberman as, as someone who was very thoughtful and strategic and always wanted to know what was on his mind. I was for many years, a reviewer for the residency review committee in orthopedic surgery. And I would go out and spend a couple days at residencies all over the country, uh, looking at the residency, writing up a report. But actually the other agenda was I was looking for ideas and every program, no matter how pathetic it might seem, has some wonderful things that they're doing. And so I'm, I'm always scouting for ideas. And, and I shamelessly will borrow them. Nothing like shameless uh, stealing, I think. <laughs> what, about, what about mentees that you've had that, that you really connected with? I mean, obviously the network of people that you have mentored is, is huge. What have been some of the relationships that you've been really proud of and maybe some characteristics of sort of things that you learned about how to really mentor people well? Because I think it's kind of similar to, to finding your mentors, you know, it's not one style of mentorship for, for everybody. You have to kind of figure out what, uh, what works well for your mentees. You know, I have not had that many occasions when I've said, okay, I'm going to be your mentor. We're going to meet every Thursday. It has been uh, much more conversations from time to time and helping people to organize their thoughts about what they want to do. 
I, I wouldn't expect to see someone who wants to do exactly what I've done, but encourage them to make some decisions. I think uh, what I've found is that stopping to say, what do I want to do with my career? What are the things that would, for me, be success? Uh, where do I want to be in five years, in 10 years? Uh, it turns out if you can write that down or if you can articulate it in a conversation, that you're probably about 80% of the way there to getting it rather than just kind of seeing what happens. And so for me, one of those moments was deciding that I wanted to be a department chair. Certainly didn't, I, I didn't say that day one, but five or eight years into my practice, 10 years, I, I started uh, thinking I'm at a point now where this is something that I would, I'd consider doing. So you need to, you need to be reevaluating. You need to take out that document, the five-year plan every year or two, update it. Often you'll find out that just because you put a bunch of things on the list, you've gotten them accomplished in the first six months. The Nobel prize still, you haven't quite gotten to that, but taking time to plan, I think is, uh, uh, is very important. And I'd, I'd, that would be the first thing I would say in terms of a discussion with, with the mentee is, where do you want to be? What would be success for you? For some people, it's chairing a department. For, for many people, no. Maybe they want to, they want to be president of their the shoulder society or um, they want continuous NIH funding or whatever it might be start to articulate it, that's that's the first thing you need to do before you can then problem solve, how do I get there? I love that, that's great advice. It really forces all of us to take a look at, you know, you may not have the answer, you may not really know where you're gonna be in five years, but uh, the process of going through and thinking about what's important to you is certainly invaluable. I also like your advice um, and your thoughts about a mentor. And I, I've been fortunate to have a lot of strong mentors in my career, and I, I would consider you, Terry, as one of those for sure. We run in the same circles, and I admire many things about what you've accomplished. Here's a here's a different slant. So, you know, the listeners are probably wondering, you know, how did you have time to run a department, and how did you have time to take care of kids and patients? But you also made time, a lot of time, it seems to me, for overseas travel and for dedicating yourself to those without great access to medical care. Explain to the listener who may not have had that pleasure, why that's so important or why that was so important to you and the type of doctor that you are? Well, my first role model without any question was my father. And he was my first mentor. My father was an ophthalmologist who practiced in Chicago and suburban Chicago and had a busy practice. But he and a couple of his buddies from uh, residency decided in 1961, kind of in the spirit of the, uh, of the Peace Corps, uh, that they should do something overseas. And so the three of them started an organization called FOCUS that provided eye care to the northern province of Haiti. And my parents would spend a month every year in Haiti. Now, since he was one of the founders, he would go in February. <laughs> but that was the role model of a physician that I grew up with, was that overseas service or care for, for the less fortunate was just a part of a physician's responsibility. So that was always in my mind. And 
as a resident, I actually went to Haiti and worked there with uh, Jim Funk, an orthopedic surgeon from Atlanta, who would go to uh, to Haiti every year for, I don't know, 30 or 40 years. I always spent one day a week at our Shriners Hospital in Chicago. So Friday was always the day at, at Shriners Hospital. And as the Soviet Union broke up, we started to see many, many children with congenital limb deformities that were completely untreated during Soviet time in Lithuania. And since one of the largest Lithuanian cities in the world is Chicago, everyone in the country of Lithuania seems to have a relative in Chicago. And we started to be inundated with these children from Lithuania with limb deformities. And we found out that there was a charity in Chicago that was paying their airfare to Chicago giving them an apartment to live in while we took care of them free at Shriners, which we were glad to do. They had challenging problems. They all seemed very grateful, but it seemed a little backwards that, that they'd be flying to see us. And ultimately in discussions with the charity that was supporting them, we said, let's go the other way. And so John Lubicki, who's one of the other pillars uh, this year, and I uh, agreed every year to go to Lithuania, spend nine or 10 days there and help train the next generation of hand surgeons, pediatric orthopedists, spine surgeons in Lithuania. Initially, we were demonstrating surgeries to them. Then they were scrubbing. Eventually, we were assisting them. And so over about a 12-year period, we watched the country throw off the the shackles of communism and become much more entrepreneurial, part of the European Union, more prosperous. Eventually, they had a nicer sea arm than I did. And it was about that time that I said, well, I think we've, we've gotten you guys going. Things are good. And I then found a way to, uh, through an alum of our medical school, to do ser a service trip every year to uh, Saigon, Vietnam. It was of a generation. Um, that was very much bifurcated by the uh, Vietnam War. I did not serve. I had a deferment for medical school. By the time I got out of medical school, the conflict was over, but it was a source of angst for anyone of my generation, whatever their role might've been. And the thought that I could go to Vietnam and give back and help uh, heal that society was very attractive. And so I work in a, a orthopedic hospital there each year for a week or two. Uh, again, mentoring young surgeons, uh, teaching them what I know. And uh, I find that tremendously fulfilling. It's unbelievable. I mean, uh, your, your dedication to, to education, especially to serving those, it, it's, it's, uh, it's something that I, that I am incredibly inspired by. And as a, I'm still looking for those opportunities. And I really, it's really unbelievable to hear what, what you've been able to accomplish. And it's really cool to see all the, uh, uh, the results of that from that. And, and I think teaching people in, in some of those other countries too, it's, it's, it's great. You know, we could go on for hours, but I think this has been an absolutely wonderful discussion. I, uh, I have learned so much just uh, from this time talking with you and uh, I appreciate it. I even appreciate the animal house reference with double secret probation. So I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll hold on to that one too. So <laughs> um, I'll give you one more reference. And, and that, that is that, uh, I had a St. Bernard that I loved dearly. And one day I was walking him 
he was about a year old, maybe a year and a half. I'm walking down the street. Someone comes up to me and says, hey, I like your St. Bernard. What's his name? And I said, Mr. Blutarski. <laughs> and, and this person, without dropping a beat, he goes, five years of, of dog training down the drain. <laughs> <laughs> Terry, this has been fantastic. And I would echo Alexander's uh, thanks for joining the podcast. And I know the listeners are going to love it. And obviously, we want to thank you for all you've done, uh, done for the profession, done for the AOA. And a, on a personal note, again, I, I look up to you and your accomplishments in the world of congenital hand surgery and hand surgery in general are, are a high mark uh, for certain. I suggest that you close the podcast by your typical email sign off. Stay positive test negative. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. Thank, Thank you so you. much, Dr. Late. Thank you all. Thank you.